There we go. This thing on? Good. I can hear it. Wonderful. Well, we are back in 2 Corinthians, and I covet your prayers because right after the service today, uh, I am going to be going uh, right down the street to do a wedding. So um, you want to talk about wearing some hats here today. Um, <laughs> it's a full day, uh, but it's going to be a glorious time. There's only one thing that I like to do more than weddings, and that's funerals. Funerals are a glorious, glorious time just to reflect on eternity and uh, the brevity of life is on everyone's heart. I just take full advantage of that and uh, preach the gospel. Um, well, we've read our text together, so why don't we pray one more time and we will get into this passage of scripture together. Well, Father, we do come before you today. We're so grateful today to be in your house. Lord, there's no other place we'd want to be. There's nowhere else I want to be, Lord. Then among your people, in your church, over your word, celebrating what you have done for us in Christ, magnifying him with one voice. And we pray that you would use this passage of scripture now just to give us a greater glimpse into the heart of Paul for the church, the heart of God for the church. As we look at this text, I pray that you would illuminate it to our hearts, that you would cause us to have that sweet interaction with the Word of God that comes through your Spirit. And Father, we just pray that you would use this to better our church, to strengthen our church, to purify our church, and to sanctify our church, and to cause us to go in the right direction as a church, in a direction that's pleasing to you, Lord, and honoring to your Word. We bless your name. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, again, the Apostle Paul is going to return to the, I, the theme of unity. Uh, this, uh, this book, it shouldn't surprise us that in this book, a large portion of this book is dedicated to the, the concept of unity in the church. If you've been following along or listening to any degree, you realize there's a lot of problems in Corinth. You see that from 1 Corinthians. You know that because in chapter 2, and as we're going to see here in chapter 7 as well, uh, Paul talks about the fact that he wrote a severe letter to them, a letter that caused them sorrow. And what provoked that letter? What provoked that letter was that there are problems in this church. There's all sorts of problems. Not only the issues that are going on in 1 Corinthians with immorality, with uh, charismatic chaos out of control, with uh, false views of eschatology, with marriage problems. There's all sorts of schisms in the church. But as we're going to learn once again, from this chapter, as we go on, there was also a, a problem with someone undermining the authority of the Apostle Paul, undermining his apostolic authority. And so Paul feels the need to have to sort of reassert that authority, to reaffirm his apostolic authority, because after all, going away from Paul is to go away from the gospel. Going away from the apostolic ministry was to go away from the purity of the tradition of the gospel. And so serious things hang in the balance here. Uh, but, you know, this passage of Scripture is so wonderful for us because it really shows us heart, uh, Paul's pastoral passion for unity. And what he gives us is various foundations for church unity. Let me begin, number one, by pointing out the first thing that we can notice, and that's in verse two, what I've called unity through affection, not abuse. You know that in churches today everywhere, abuse happens. 
There's abusive pastors. There's abusive leadership. Sometimes there's abusive deacon boards that beat up on the pastor. Uh, Whatever combination you want to talk about, there are all sorts of spiritually abusive situations in the church. And my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Far from that, the Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that this church understood that he loved them, that his, his affections were for them. Let's read again verse 2, what he says here. He says, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. And so this sort of this triple assertion of innocence that Paul is going to use here. But the very first thing that he uses is this idea of making room in their hearts for him. He says, make room for us in your hearts. This is the language of openness. This is the language of transparency. This is the language of an apostle that wants to have a real authentic relationship with the church. He is not seeking professionalism, He is not seeking to turn the church into a corporation or a business. He is seeking the church to be what it's supposed to be. A church is the household of God. It is the household of faith. It is a family, right? And as any family, he wants them to be knit together in love. The scriptures have lots to say on this. Earlier on in chapter 6, verse 11, just a a bit before this, this section, Paul has already spoken in this candid way. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. He says, our heart is open wide. He says, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children. There's the familial theme right there. Open wide to us also. So there he's just saying, look, whatever's transpired, whatever problems have happened in the church, Paul, after he's given this lengthy dissertation as to why his apostolic ministry is still above par, why he never wronged them, or as we see right here, he never wronged anyone, he never corrupted anyone, he never took advantage of anyone. In other words, there is no legitimate reason for them to be shutting him out of their hearts And this is the work of division. When someone is in a church dividing a church and getting a church to divide against its leaders, there comes a strange coldness. There comes a certain type of of animosity, a standish off, a standoffish attitude from their leadership that ought not to be so. We get so many people that come, you know, through the doors of our church and they, they share with me the experience that they're in, maybe some other church. And I can't tell you how many people, I had a gentleman come here and tell me, yeah, I go to this church, but I don't respect my pastors. Dear friends, that ought not to be so. If you can't respect the leadership, you shouldn't be there. Because it's not God's will for you to go to a church where you can't respect your elders, where you can't submit freely to the authority of the leadership in the church. That is absolutely foreign to everything in Scripture. It ought to be a harmonious unity. It ought to be a trust relationship that runs both ways. There ought to be certain things that the the church trusts about the leadership and certain things about the leadership that they trust their people. This is the way it has to be. But Paul uses three words here to sort of assert his integrity. Number one, he says that we have wronged no one. That's kind of a general way of saying we have not done anything to anybody. We have, we can, we're not guilty of abusing anyone. But as the terms go on, 
I think what Paul is getting at is a little bit more specific because the terms that he uses here to corrupt or even to take advantage lean to this direction of a financial meaning. And I think what Paul is getting at is he's saying, look, I have not financially taken advantage of anyone. And why do I say that? We are about to embark on a whole section here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, primarily chapter 8 and chapter 9, which is all about money. And you know that when money's in the mix, anything can go wrong. And any, all sorts of uh, accusations can be made. And so I think what Paul is saying here is, look, we did not deal in any financial impropriety in the church. Obviously, this is so relevant today, right? So many scandals break out in churches over finances. The pastor is flying around with private jets. The pastor is living lavishly. He's living high on the hog, and he's taking the very last drop of every person's tithe and putting them in financial binds. You remember the story of the woman, the, the widow's mite? You remember when she came and she gave her last mite to the temple? Isn't that amazing? Here is a widow coming to the establishment, the institution of Israel, and Jesus tells this, this story about this widow that gives the last portion that she had to the temple. And if you're not careful to understand the context, it's not just exalting this woman's faith and saying, oh, look, what great sacrifice this widow had. Surely she did. But the audacious thing about that passage is that those Pharisees and those scribes and those teachers would take a widow's last mite. Are you kidding me? They should give her mites, not take them away from her. Far be it that we would ever demand in this church that you give your last mite to our church. No, if we see that you are down to your last mite, we will do whatever we can to make sure that you're taken care of. That, see, that's real love. That's real unity. That's a healthy church situation. And Paul's going to go on to talk about this over and over again. Because you think about it, when Paul writes the severe letter, if he did in fact write this letter to them and rebuke them and correct them and pointed out sin in their lives, sin in the church primarily, it's very easy for a church to get defensive at that point. It's very easy for the church to have been offended by the things that Paul talked about. And to think that Paul is trying to come across as some dictatorial ruler over them. But you remember what he said earlier for 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, beginning in verse 23. This is not Paul's aim in ministry. He says, I call God as my witness to my soul. To spare you, I didn't come again to Corinth. They're explaining why he had to change up certain travel arrangements. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, speaking of his authority, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. That is the aim of all true ministry, not abuse, but joy, to promote joy in the church. That was Paul's greatest aim in the church. And this joy is a sanctifying joy. This joy is a holy joy. This is the joy that arises out of the truth, not out of a pretentious silliness, not out of an emotional ecstasy of trying to whip people up into an emotional frenzy and try to call that joy. No, this is joy, as he goes on to talk about in this letter, joy in the midst of affliction, joy in the midst of trial, joy in the midst of suffering. That's true joy. And that's what he was after. 
Paul was so careful to point out, again, his integrity when he used the phrase, we took advantage of no one. The word actually means to exploit somebody, to defraud somebody. It was used in the ancient world of, of a cheat someone who would cheat someone out of either money or possessions. And Paul's trying to say, I have never cheated anyone in the church. You know Paul's testimony among the churches. Oftentimes, Paul wouldn't even take money. Paul wouldn't even be uh, compensated for his labor. He would work with his own hands, make his own money, so as not to be a burden. He'll go on later in the context of finances specifically Later in chapter 12, he'll go on to talk about the fact that what could be said of him could also be said of his associates like Timothy or Titus. In chapter 12, verse 18, it says, I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of any of you, did he? See, this is, this is Paul's band of brothers. There was a certain standard of integrity that they all had to abide by. Paul and his associates. He took every precaution not to be blamed for anything that would discredit his ministry. Listen to what he says in chapter 8. If you just look over there, in chapter 8, verse 20, he says, Taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. This is talking about the Jerusalem collection. This is the sort of the, the missionary endeavor that Paul is on right now as he's writing this. He's going around to the various churches in Macedonia, collecting finances to go and provide for the poor in Jerusalem. He says he did not want the ministry or he did not want the administration of that gift to be discredited. He says, for we have, regarded, we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Not also not just before the Lord, but in the sight of men as well. One of the strongest signs of true unity is a willingness to show affection. I tell you what, there is not a greater contradiction than a cold pastor. A pastor is to be a shepherd. A pastor is to be a father figure. A pastor is to be someone that you could come to to pour out your soul and to become vulnerable and transparent with. You're not coming to a CEO. You're not coming to your boss at work. You're not coming to a police officer. You're not coming to a politician. You're coming to a shepherd. You're coming to a shepherd. Interestingly enough, uh, just recently, we went to the Shepherds Conference. And one of the speakers there, Phil Johnson, talked about that there's, a, there's an alarming trend going on in the church today that many churches are trying to drop the language of shepherding for other, you know, more cool, relevant terms like life coach or something like that, other psychological terms, right, things that unbelievers can identify with. But you see, the language of a shepherd is so critical to the pastoral ministry. It really sums up what we are. We are those that watch over the flock. We are those that guard the sheep. We are those that are entrusted with God's fragile creatures. That's what it is. And that's what Paul was committed to do. He was committed to them. And that's the second thing. Look at verse 3. Not only was there unity through affection and not abuse, but there was also unity through commitment and not condemnation. He says, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Wow, what language? What language? Life and death is not presented to us in, in Western American church society. It's not really that prevalent here, right? Life and death, 
especially in connection to your Christian walk. But the Lord reminded me of this again, uh, just this past Friday. I got a chance, we were out uh, doing evangelism, and right after I got done, you know, I was doing a little preaching, I got done, uh, a, a couple brothers came up to me, there were pastors from, uh, one was from Egypt and one was from Mumbai in India. The pastor in India turned out uh, remarkably, we actually knew the same people, it was just, it was just a, quite, a, quite a moment. Uh, but he told us about young converts in Mumbai coming to Christ coming to the faith, abandoning Islam and becoming Christians and, 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 and submitting to the authority of the local church there, which is such a huge cost for them. He told me the story of a young girl that uh, recently was converted and recently baptized. And he said, we must ask these baptiz- baptismal candidates, the people being baptized, are you ready to die for Christ? <laughs> that is not a, um, that's not just a trick question or, you know, that's not a, a super spiritual question. That's reality. She said, yes, I am. They baptized her. And after that, they tell their converts, we want you to go home and tell your family what you've done. So she went home and told her family what he had done, what she had done. And her family, in a fit of rage, threw her out of a 16-story building to her death. That is life and death in the persecuted church. That is Christianity costing you something. That is identifying with 